Goldman Sachs waited for Robinhood to go down 84% before they decided to recommend that you, you should sell it. Nice work by the analysts there. I just wanted to shout that out. <laughs> <laughs> In a perfect world, you might tell people to sell it near the top rather than after the 84% drawdown. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. How's it going? Oh, it's good. It is good. It's good. Yeah. I loved that in the pre-show meeting today, we almost started yelling at each other. We almost just jumped straight into the topic. That clearly means the pod needs to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's time. Start it. <laughs> I'm already yelling at you. Uh, I love it. Oh, good times over there. Yeah, no complaints, man. Great. I love it. I love it. I love it. Let's hop in. I'm going to fishbowl grab and go back into the ancient days. Actually, that's, that might be too mean. But Kenneth French, you know Kenneth French. Um, oh, yeah. Good guy. Dartmouth been around, in the house. There it is. Been around for a while. He's a Dartmouth professor, as you just mentioned. And he's most well-known academically for working with someone named Eugene Fama. So if you ever see something out there that's like Fama French, French Fama, right? Uh, it's those two people working together. They've A lot of their work is pushing back on beta and cap m as the the models for returns they have a whole bunch of stuff out there um he also has a, like a lot of data that people use of his um because he like yeah. likes to keep proprietary data sets anyway he came out with this i think it's an essay at this point the length of this i don't know it's kind of like when does a salad become a salad like if it's got macaroni is it in it is it a salad i want to call a 22 this... minute read i mean I, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's this weird yeah. length right We're, when does a post become an essay? I think it's around the 19th minute, I think is when a post becomes an essay. So he wrote this. It's called Five Things I Know About Investing. So when someone that's been around the block for this amount of time boils things down to that number, like a, a small, simple list, it's, it's always, for me, it's always an interesting read. Um, I'm going to name the five things, but there are really only two that I want to get your yeah. take on. So the five things he wrote about. One is risk is uncertainty about lifetime consumption. I want, that's one of the ones I want to talk about. Ew. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> Don't like it. Don't like that sentence. <laughs> two, the average dollar invested holds the market. Three, chance dominates realized returns. That's the second one I want to talk about. Mm. Four, active investing is a negative sum game. And five, most investors should diversify their portfolios. So those are the five things that he put out there. Again, I want to talk about risk as uncertainty about lifetime consumption, which got a hallelujah out of you. And the second one I want to talk about is chance dominates realized returns. If any of the other phrases stand out to you, I'm happy to talk about those too. But those are the ones that like really stood out the most to me in reading the meat, the Arby's of this whole thing. I mean, I'm not going to argue against the fifth point that most investors should hold diversified portfolios. So we can leave that one on the table. But let, let's dive into risk. I'm really curious about his approach here. So I thought this was interesting. Agree or disagree doesn't matter, but I just thought what he was talking about here was interesting. So what he said is whenever he goes to his students, other professors, right, people in, out there in the world and asks, like, what's the definition of risk? Well, one, risk is important. That's like the first statement. Like risk is an important okay. thing as an investor. We talked a bunch about that. But when he goes out, 
and ask people, what is risk? He gets a whole bunch of different definitions. Generally, he says they, they can be summarized as it's either loss, like the, the potential for loss. Permanent um, loss of capital. Yes. Yep. It's volatility, like how volatile mm-hmm. is your investment? Or it has something to do with beta, which comes back from the, the CAPM which model. Which is basically volatility. I which mean, is basically, yeah. But yeah. It, yes, volatility is tied to returns kind of, right? But yes. So he's, but he's said, like, depending on who he talks to, it's one of those three things. We could ignore the third one. It's all academic. But the, the first two, he's saying that those don't quite capture it. And what he says, going back to his sentence, risk is uncertainty about lifetime consumption, is ultimately like the reason that people invest is we invest such that we can use that, what he calls wealth, he's defining that as wealth here, in the future. And so you can, there's like a hint of like loss and a hint of volatility in this, but what he's saying is no matter what you want to use that for, some people might say, I want to use it for day-to-day stuff, like I want to live off of it. Some people say I want to be philanthropic and, and some people might want to give to their kids, whatever. The uncertainty that you have around your ability to consume that money over your lifetime that we that you want, that's risk. Here's, Wait, here's so an example. he's putting risk on basically the uncertainty I have of knowing when I need that money. Is that what you're saying? And amount that you need and your ability yeah. to be able to use it how you want to use it. That, that's okay. what he said. And okay. so like an example that he gives of what typically could be viewed as a bad investment in by other definitions is homeowners insurance. So he says homeowners insurance is a terrible investment if you look at it in other in other ways because homeowners insurance like couldn't be an industry if the average person hadn't expected positive return as an investor. He says it has to like the the company goes through they have all their their models and everything. So it has to be a positive return for them. So the average person can have a negative return. But excuse me, Mr. Pharma. Uh, do you know the definition of insurance? This is French. It's not an investment. <laughs> well, that's actually, that's not completely true if you go through all different types of invest- in insurance. But but his point is saying, like, I'm, just to just take it, just for <laughs> definitional purposes. What he's saying is he goes, but the thing is like, if things go wrong, then it could be detrimental. And so the reason you buy this is just so that you have more certainty about your ability to consume in the future. Like that's what he's saying so it's like it's kind of again i do think it's it's a bit of a combination of loss and volatility okay. that that he's putting together in here he doesn't he doesn't say that but i do think that's what it is but i thought that was kind of just a fact i hadn't thought about it that way and i thought it was a fascinating way to think about it as all i want is when i want this money to use for whatever i want to use it for i want to make sure it's there and what i need to do to make sure that it's there if it's not that's risky to me and so it doesn't matter how volatile like i could have the most volatile portfolio in the world so long as what I need is there when I need it. And so that's not risky, so long as the amount that I need is there when I need it. Yeah, I guess I think the permanent uh, loss of capital definition uh, fulfills the caveats you just made about, well, if it's there when I need it. Like, if I know, maybe it's built into my inherent definition of risk, which is more the permanent loss of capital. Like, if I know that I don't need this money for 20 years, then I can hold more vol- volatile investments. And that's why one of the time- things I say when I talk to people about their investments is, let's figure out your time horizon first. So maybe I am in the French camp on this one, but I, I think that's a clunky way to say it. Maybe I just haven't fully understood his definition yet. Yeah, it's, I, don't, I don't know necessarily... Uh, that his definition will change like actions or my perspective around it, but I hadn't thought about it this way. 
because I, it's, it's almost like if you need to make up a number, if you need a hundred grand, that's what you need. And you have 500 grand in your portfolio, then you kind of, that $400,000 difference, like you, there's, there isn't risk. Like you could put that in whatever and wouldn't consider it to be risk because you don't need it for your consumption yeah. needs. Yeah. And so it's a, it, I don't know. It's interesting. I found that that's actually be a little bit interesting. Let's hop to the second one because you're sure. still making grimacey face. Yeah, so exactly. The, the second thing I, I want to talk about is chance dominates real returns. For this one, he got real clunky academic for this one, but I'm going to try and sum it up in a, uh, in a quick way. So what he's saying is that he made up this, like it looks like a really fancy definition, but he, he shows this uh, equation that is your returns are your expected returns plus your unexpected returns. Yes. Okay. Um, and the expected unexpected returns are always zero. He made sure to state that, which yes, because they're not expected. So you can't have expected on any, anyway. So he got reelectimic with it. But the purpose of this is he, what he states is that unexpected returns account for most returns in his view, but because they're not expected, like they're not in most people's equations. So that's like, that's like a general statement that he makes. Th that, that's what this section's about. The part that I want to talk about, though, that I thought was most interesting is he says, and we, we've talked about this before, he says, be careful because most returns come from the unexpected returns part. Be really careful when people are trying to sell you their own models, basically, is what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Because what people often do, and I'll just go through some of the points. He says, start by considering the model that justifies the pattern, right? A winning pattern is more likely to persist if the model that pre predicts it's compelling and the credibility of both the model and the pattern are enhanced a lot if the model obviously comes first. We've talked a lot about this, not even necessarily on the pod, but just like in our, uh, in our, our lives, right? About uh, it's like overfitting and whatnot. And what yeah. I'll use different words than he used here when he talks about model and pattern. My interpretation of what he's saying here is you come up with your, your thought process and the theory. And then if you come up with that and then build a model to fit that, then go and look at the data, that's more compelling. Then if you go and you look at the data and use the data to then come up with your, your thought process and your theory, that's yes. effectively, that's what he's saying. He's like, that's compelling. Right. Can I re-say that? Because I would say you should figure out what your core beliefs are and then figure out if you can build, if you're a person that believes a quantitative approach is better, which you and I both do, then you figure out how to build a quantitative approach that supports your core values. And that sets you up for success, assuming you find something that actually outperforms historically, which is another hard thing to do. Very hard. Like, yeah, so hard. Very, very, very hard. Yeah, but that, that's a that's a great way. That's a great way to state it. Um, so I thought that was important. And then the second piece is he says, be suspicious about unusual procedures, a peculiar sample period, or strange variable definitions. One he uses, and I think there can be there's some flexibility to this last point, but I think it's a good one. He says, be suspicious when there are no when there's no obvious link between the sample period and the start of available data. So when he's talking about available data, he goes back to uh, CRISP, sure. right? Which we, we've discussed CRISP. It's the um, Center for Research and Security Prices that's out of University of Chicago. Yeah. Um, and kind of viewed as like an official source of truth for stock return data. And they have starting periods that are January, 1926. They have a starting period for uh, 1962. 
starting period for 1973 for the different exchanges of yes. when when they have uh, when they state they have clean data for it and he's saying when you start at periods that like aren't those and really the extreme of it is and he's saying you know people are like i came up with this thing and if you and we, we've joked about this a bunch in the past right they're like if you look at this from february of 2004 <laughs> to january of 2012 like it's amazing <laughs> right and you go well it's 2022 so like what's happened in the last decade and what happened before then, right? And so he, he's saying that. So I think those, those points I thought were also pretty solid. The chance dominating returns, expected, unexpected, I think he needed that setup in order to, for his essay, that's, that's also what makes an essay, thesis, supporting points. <laughs> he needed that setup, but I thought that those points were important. Yeah, I love that you, I mean, this is interesting. I certainly don't agree with all of it. And I... I'm tempted to like dive into the academic breakdown of uh, Cap M and uh, talk beta and everything else, but I'll spare our listeners that. Though I like the spirit of his point about, hey, look at a data set that starts in 1926 or 1973 or, you know, but there's inherent flaws with those too because there, if you see a lot of back testing from 1973 on, well, what was happening? in 1973 and what headwinds have you been facing and is that going to work in 2022 we talked about this last week i'm going to talk about it more this week bond prices i have it in front of me from 1981 this only goes to 2016 but had a real return of 5.6 percent with a maximum loss of 13 percent during that time frame so anything that starts in a 73 back test today today that involves a significant portion of bonds has the best bull run ever for the bond market and this is a 10-year treasury i'm looking at yep. so yep. like yeah is that the right approach maybe but you also can't just be like oh this back test came from 1973 that guarantees it's going to work in 2023 there's so much more to it than that i don't think he's saying that but i guess i'm i'm on that rant these days yeah i think the bigger it's a, it's a great point i think the bigger point that i would say to take away is just look at what the starting dates are and whether that is a cherry picked sample period is probably. Yeah, that's like, very fair. And yeah. like I, the other thing I'd say is when, when you and I talk about our performance, like we talk about it from the start of our investing lives to today, not, we don't talk about it from 1973. Right. And to me, that makes sense. Yeah. The, the back testing that we've talked about, we go to different periods, but sure, sure. Like, but yeah. But yeah, so I think that this is interesting. It's it's worth for for those that want to sit down and have a twenty two minute read. I think I think it's worth going through. We'll put it on the uh, the Substack that goes out, so you can click that link that goes out on Mondays. Perfect. Yeah, thanks, Dougals. Listen, I need a little like kind of therapy session. Is Doctor Dougals in the house today? Can uh, you put him. on a fancy hat over here? I'll and... go. I'll go get him. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Turns out. I'm dealing with some addiction struggles these days, Diggles. I'm mostly addicted to the interest that's rolling off my iSeries bond that we <laughs> talked about in November. Holy yes. cow. So for a refresher, if you don't know, we mentioned this, I think, uh, in a November show. And I know we had a bunch of listeners take us up. So we had tens of thousands, if not a hundred if not more than a hundred thousand dollars flow into this after our listeners did their own research because we don't give investment advice we give research recommendations um i did the same and for those who don't know you could put 
about ten thousand dollars a year in these iSeries bonds that are leaked to inflation. Um, the current rate is seven point one two percent. That's roughly sixty bucks a month on ten k deals, right? Yep. So I have some money in the old school banking system, some money in bonds, lots of money in equity, brokerage accounts all over the place, you know, because I'm a guy that has an investing podcast. The <laughs> the sixty bucks a month that rolls rolls off this Dougals, it just I haven't had this feeling since I was like six years old and I opened my first bank account back when rates were decent. <laughs> this is amazing. When's the last time $60 a month showed up somewhere and you were just like, just enjoying the fruits of your labor, no volatility. You don't have to deal with the crazy Chinese political nonsense with your Alibaba holdings or, you know, like whatever the case may be, Zuckerberg doing something with crazy with Facebook or oil prices going crazy because of World War Three, Like, there's no variables here, Dougals. Yep. It's just money shows up in your account. Yeah, it's pretty you, freaking rad. If if you have the means, do go research these things if you have not. Because it, it to your point, you can every calendar year you can put in 10k. If you have a significant like a spouse, um, they can put in. Yeah, if you have a business, well you can year. put in 10k. If you have a business, it, like, right? And it yeah, it just it just is until inflation starts to go down. It'll you know well, it'll go down accordingly. But for now. It just is. I guess <laughs> like, I just had it. this really like this hasn't happened to me in probably 30 plus years and where it's just like, hey, you actually make what feels like a decent chunk of money for doing nothing. It rates have been so low for so long. So I compared this to a similar amount of money in the traditional banking system that made 99 cents last month. Right. So <laughs> $59 free. Yeah, well, it's and, not comparable to a savings account. Like it's, it's, it's not. It, yep. it, you're like talking hundreds. Of, even the high yield savings account that are maybe half a percent. Uh, you know, not comparable. Fourteen times that plus. So that's the first thing I need ser- therapy on. I'm. I think I'm buying some more I bonds because in the craziness that is the markets right now, this just feels really good. Doctor Dougal's will give you that therapy, and I'm going to go in on a side here that you yeah. just reminded me of. Is I read something this week. Where Giannis, you know, the phenomenal yes. basketball player from the Milwaukee Bucks, he was like you, Skippy. He was like you in opening a whole bunch of accounts. Um, he was nothing like you, but he was opening a whole bunch of accounts. But this, I'm gonna, this is like not even a Giannis specific thing. I read this and I went, I, I can understand where people that don't have a solid understanding of investments, different types of investments, um, returns like the market, where they might do what Giannis did. What Giannis did, so this is this is a man, for those that do not know, phenomenal basketball player, makes millions of dollars a year playing basketball, makes millions of dollars a year on um, his endorsements. endorsements. What he read, which is true, he read that in a, any given bank account, you can hold up to $250,000 that will be fully insured by the FDIC, the Federal mm-hmm. Deposit Insurance Corporation. So- he said, okay, so I'm, I can put $250,000. I have a lot of $250,000, this is, is what he said. So I'm going to put $250,000 in this bank. And then I guess he I have had to open another bank account. 50 plus bank accounts, yeah. He had 50 plus bank accounts, all with $250,000 that were sitting in them. But I, I actually this love this. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. It's great. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you got me excited. It means he cares about his money and the the back. He's from Greece, right? He's often called the Greek freak. Like he he cares about the safety and security of his money. And I uh, I'm totally I think it's so cool that he took that approach. Now, when you're dealing with 
tens to hundreds of millions of dollars is their better approaches sure but like i have no i have no qualms with this if he wants to have 50 bank accounts i think that's the most awesome thing in the world because it just shows like how valuable he sees those and how concerned he is about his the safety of his dollars which means he's not going to be one of those people that has a career where they make 150 million bucks and ends up on the street you're you know living in a thousand dollar rental or whatever no not at all he could he could literally spend a whole whole heap of money and he will likely forget about 10 of the banks and still be fine like <laughs> um yeah i anyway that's an aside but you made me think about it when you're talking about different brokerage accounts they're having those that Giannis had 50 plus bank accounts in order to make sure that all of his money was fully insured by the federal government all right you know I, you know i wrapped up the bond king this week quality book i'd say you have to be an investing nerd to like it because it's i don't know a decent size but man bill gross the guy is making or was making 200 million dollars a year and this was his chosen lifestyle diggles it was to wake up i'll get the number wrong i think it was 3 45 in the morning maybe 4 15 in the morning have a cup of coffee and shower i think check the bloomberg terminal at like 4 45 then drive in past past fashion island if you've ever been <laughs> down to newport beach hit hit a specific starbucks Get another like three shots of coffee, be in the office by, I don't know, maybe it's 530 or something, work crazy hours, work till six or seven at night. And in a lot of cases, like have incredible feuds with your colleagues and then go home and do it all again the next day. Like the book is fascinating. Bill Gross is fascinating. Other characters are fascinating, but I don't know why I just sit back and go, Dude, why didn't you just take, you could have taken 10% of one year's salary and like gone and done whatever you want to do and not be miserable day in, day out. But he kind of, in a way, chose to be miserable for 45 plus years. He still does. I mean, it seems like, it seems like he still does. This is the, he doesn't do all that because he doesn't go in the office anymore, but this seems to be the life that he chooses. Like. Because what he was, I listened to a podcast interview with him this past week. And what he was saying there was he gets, he still gets up, but like, whatever, for something. And from, I think it was 5.30 in the morning until noon 30 in the morning, he just trades in his portfolio. Like the guy is 80 years old. Yeah. Has buku wuku. Yep. And what is he trade? Like, what is he, first of all, I, the first thing I thought was like, what are you trading? Like, I'm not even sure what you're doing for for seven hours in your personal portfolio every day like what are you trading we all know he's not doing it well um anymore right but that's what he loves well and so that i respect i mean like he loves the challenge of investing and especially in the bond market that's freaking great that's his passion that's what all this other stuff got in the way of is my point it's like you could have taken your billion dollars at at one point and like gone and traded and hopefully been happy so for those who don't know after he leaves pimco he moves to janice funds and it's all out of spite basically he uh sets up an office because janice was based in denver at the time directly adjacent to the pimco offices in uh, newport beach in a same bu- the, the basically a building built by the same developer that happened to be one story taller 
which people speculate is like him one-upping Pimco. But he'd go into his office and stare at the Pimco building every day and just effectively be like, I hate them while doing the exact same job. Yeah. Then after he gets remarried and has his beach house, I think the story goes he had a Chihuly uh, that he purchased for his wife, you know, whatever, $1 million, $10 million, who knows, that was getting damaged by like hailstorms or, or some sort of debris from the ocean. So they put up some protecting cover that blocked their neighbor's ocean view. So, of course, they end up with a fe- in a feud with their neighbor that goes to court and ends up in a multi- multi-million dollar lawsuit. But him and his spouse at the time are so petty that they set up outdoor speakers and played music as loud as possible 24-7 to annoy their neighbors during the middle of this lawsuit. And they're like countersuing back and forth. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. It doesn't re- sound like a fun life. I think I read that it was the Gilligan's Island theme song. That it was, was there was also uh, 50 Cent in the club and like oh. some other. It was a, a unique collection of music. <laughs> what, is that, then, what, what is that Spotify playlist? <laughs> I'm sure it's out there, man. And then they went into court and claimed like, oh, we really like the Gilligan's Island theme song. We danced to it in the pool. So the, one of the rulings was if uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gross or whoever were not actively in the pool, they weren't allowed to play music outside. Like, this is where this went. Oh, it's unreal. I just, Dr. Dougals, I'm struggling to reconcile. (laughs) The guy has all the money in the world, effectively. And, I mean, uh, to switch gears slightly, go buy 10% of Twitter. That's, I'm on board. Do that with your crazy wealth. Don't annoy your neighbors. People tie their identities to certain things, and they get tunnel vision especially i think the older that you get the easier it can be to have like one thing that you then get so focused on right because you don't have he, he can he can dictate his own life for the most period so like when you're 24 you might get this idea i'm gonna play music for days for my neighbors because i you know blah 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 but then like 10 minutes in you're like oh actually i saw there's a party like you know across he doesn't he doesn't have that kind of distraction he can do what he wants, when he wants. Like, that is focus. It's true. Like, even if I, in my most vindictive, turned on music to annoy my neighbors and say I, I think the max I could do it is, like, five minutes. But let's pretend that I could actually do it for 24 hours and I slept on it. I can't imagine waking up the next day and not turning off the music. But, th- no, this went on for, like, months. <laughs> that, that one I, I, wish, I wish I could help you with. But I'll say people have their identities. I am going to grab on to the little little nugget that you threw out there, reach into the fishbowl, and talk about Elon Musk. For a couple months now, he's been a troll forever, but for a couple, a Twitter <laughs> troll forever. But for a couple months now, he's been talking about like building his own social network, um, how there are specific things around Twitter that he, he doesn't like. And it was revealed through an SEC filing recently that he bought 9.2% of Twitter. He's been accumulating stock. And so that social network he's building is it's called Twitter. Um, he is the largest shareholder now in Twitter. Yes. And he likes, to, he likes to point this out, that he has 9.2% and Jack Dorsey has 2.5%. He likes yep. to point that out um, because he's not vindictive or, or trite or anything. He's not. Elon would never. What I find most interesting outside of the 
I'd say the obvious things that are out there is like, what's it going to do with Twitter? What's he thinking about this as a communication platform? There's all that. There's the business side. But what I think is most interesting here is that he is, so he's the wealthiest person in the world. And he is the, I'm going to say the only, you can combat me on this, but the, the, at least he's using his money more as a tool, maybe not the only, but he's using his money more as a tool and a utility than the other people that sit on that billionaire list. Like many of those folks, they are accumulating. I mean, an active tool in the business world because they're doing things right. Like Gates is obviously using his money to like fight disease around the world and climate change. And so like he's using it, but Elon is like in the business world saying, I'm going to, I am, what is he late forties, something like that now. Like I still have half my life ahead of me and I am like, I'm in, I'm staying relevant, using my money to stay relevant in business stuff that is happening today and not just building my companies. It's kind of fascinating. Oh, it's funny that you have that perspective. I don't think that perspective is wrong, but my, I come at it from a slightly different angle. For the longest time, he was taking no formal salary from Tesla and he would go on and brag about like, remember that crypto forum? sometime last year that him and Kathy Wood and Jack Dorsey were on. Yep. He He's in the middle of that being like, I own some Bitcoin, some Dogecoin and Tesla stock. And that is it. And he, so he's pounding the table at that point for his lack of diversification, trying to make the point that what he owns, he truly believes in. And that's why all his money is in Tesla. Well, he's unique. I think there's very little argument that he's not super bright. And what I see him doing is diversifying away from Tesla. So gosh, if with my investing hat on, if you told me I could buy Tesla or Twitter, it's a slam dunk. I buy Twitter a hundred times out of a hundred, not necessarily because I think the business prospects are greater. I just think the valuation is so much closer to i'm not claiming that either of them is a deal but i think twitter is much more of a deal than tesla yeah so all right there might there's probably some of that but i do with his personality and i don't know him so this is all speculation but with the personality that i see that he puts out into the world a diversification play to me it doesn't fully make sense and i think it'd be a lower amount like he he bought 9.2 percent of twitter and i cannot remember the number here, but the second largest shareholder Twitter is Vanguard. And I think they own like 9.1%. So like, this is not, it's something like that. Maybe it's 8.8, but it's like, it's something high. He bought enough to be the largest shareholder in Twitter. I don't think that that's just a diversification play. I think it's a power play. Uh, No, so it is a power play. He's now on the board because he owns 9.2%, but he only spent, and I say only, something like $3.2 billion. So his wealth varies greatly because it's all tied in Tesla stock, but it's definitely north of a hundred billion dollars. Um, I expect him. I so there's two conflicting things that I don't want to conflate too much. One, I think he loves Twitter. I think he cares about Twitter. I think he could it sees that it could be better, and is genuinely engaged and wants to be part of that. And he's just in a different income bracket than me or you where if i thought twitter was super cool i don't have the means to take three percent of my worth and get to do basically whatever i want but i do think i expect him to do more of these i'll call it marketing ploys but it's marketing ploys with a predetermined outcome for those who don't know he was on twitter several weeks ago being like 
is Twitter broken? The results of this survey will have consequence, which is basically like this wink, wink. I will fix it if the majority of people think that the censorship yeah. is too great. And then he announces a nearly 10% stake in the company. I expect him to do that with a few more companies because I think he knows that he has to move away from Tesla just to not be. You you, you do not have your mentality. Yeah. Is so risk averse. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. You don't have the mentality of Elon who will bet everything uh, on one thing over and over again. Like he, he does this. I, I think there's a greater chance and I don't know how big of a chance this actually is, but I think there's a greater chance that instead of doing this for a bunch of stuff that he tries to own all of Twitter over the next 10 to 15 years. I think that's the, the, the bigger like chance for him. And he, again, he won't necessarily be able to do that, but I think he will keep accumulating Twitter shares and not start making 10% bets. Um, or 3% bets of his own. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. Because if I was Elon, I never would have become the richest person in the world. Because uh, when I was in the top 20, I would have like diversified like crazy. And uh, yep. yeah, I'm so risk averse. And he is not. No, he's, so, he, makes, he makes huge bets. And on things that don't make any, I'll say, physical sense like for what he's doing because the one thing you left out of his ownership is spacex is the other thing he's like i'm gonna bet it all on beating nasa like what right i'm over here debating whether or not i want to invest in a like a sousan of like money in a japanese power tools company (laughs) which is like as boring as it gets that makita makita exactly and he is like saying i'm gonna take down nasa i'm gonna be the first um, car company that will like exist past a decade for the last century, right? Like those those types of things. Like he makes huge bets. So yeah, I want to rescind my previous argument. He's not about diversification. I'm an idiot. Um, okay, but let's just say that we, we talked about the billionaires tax at the end of last week's episode. Let's just say like Elon is the prime example of why I'm against the billionaires tax. Elon is not from America and Elon is so crazy in a good way that we can launch rockets into space. We have, we're the dominant player in electric cars and we can turn on internet in Ukraine during the middle of a conflict, like the U S government and basically no other entrepreneur built that sort of stuff at the scale that he built it. There's very few people talking about colonizing Mars except for him. And if they are talking about it, it's because he put the crazy goal out there. So props to yep. Elon. There, and Elon, the Skippy and Diggle show is looking for equity investors. Uh, price tag, <laughs> $3 billion. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, there's, there's a question from a country standpoint as to whether you want someone to wield that much power. But sure. But he is, if anyone would, he wouldn't even John Templeton it, which when we talk about John Templeton, he was an investor back in the day. He moved out of the country questionably. This is what, 60 years ago, 50 years ago at some point, maybe because our tax rate was too high and he didn't want to pay it. Who knows? But anyway, he wouldn't just do that. He would probably buy an island, make it into a country, create an (laughs) Elon government, 
right? Like that yeah, is he what he would do. And he, and he will, he'll say, if I have a hundred billion dollars, I'm going to spend $99.9 billion on doing this. <laughs> like that is how, that is how wild he is. And he goes, and if it fails, I have a hundred million dollars. Like I'm good. Like, like yep. that's kind of, and this goes back to our boy, Kenneth French, because that's not risk in his, in his eyes, his lifetime consumption. No, too much. Yeah. All right, anyway. yeah. Um, so Elon buying Twitter. I mean, my fishbowl is these days, it's all Walmart all the time. I've read this article several times. I think it might be an April Fool's joke or the onion punking me. But here's what the title says, Diggles. Walmart dangles $110,000 starting pay to lure truck drivers. In the article, they talk about how you can work another job within Walmart, go through what looks like a four to five week training program and potentially come, become a truck driver. The median salary for tractor trailer drivers in 2020, this is not Walmart, this is industry-wide, was $47,000. So Walmart has always prided themselves on paying their truckers more. They think the logistics of their supply chain is an incredibly important piece, and so they want the top talent there. But this says so much about the economy today, inflation, supply chains, a thousand other things than it does about Walmart to me. And I just, this is the most shocking headline I've read in months. Yeah, I think it, to your point, it's um, the Walmart part of this. It happens like they're a company that they need drivers for supply chain, but it's, it is about supply and demand and our current economic needs um, of organizations. That is a, that's a high salary. A six figure salary is a high salary, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's typically the thing that I really like about this is that those are the types of salaries that are typically reserved for others. Um, others like uh, the like a quote unquote white collar jobs when I say like yeah like sure. others right um, and that's kind of awesome you what was it a few months ago you were discussing uh, truck drivers and you were saying that uh, you were you were talking about like the number of hours and the miles they put on and all, like all like it's a it is an arduous tough job yeah it's yeah. a tough job getting paid you're getting paid which is you know that's great if 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 you're up for that job right? Getting paid for it. It's awesome. Like there's so much good here because we did talk about, we talked about this specifically um, probably three months back. And at that time they were saying uh, truck driver salaries ha had really been increasing and many places were offering bonuses around 10 K just to sign. And then they walked through what a typical week looks like. And if I remember correctly, it's 60 to 75 hours a week. They talked through a number of miles, basically uh, pay per mile, everything else, right? I don't have any issue with people getting paid for for good work. I just think like this resets the market, and I don't know another job off the top of my head. There probably is a few that the certification to be a truck driver um, costs somewhere around five thousand dollars, and again takes I think a month to six weeks typically. I don't know anywhere else where you can spend five thousand dollars and immediately have a career that makes six figures like it's a whole it's a brave new world it's not necessarily a bad thing it's just different no yeah it's more power to you go get it yeah so um Dougal's that sorry this is kind of should have been part of the dr Dougal segment but that leads to one more thing <laughs> um 
I might be on the road more for these shows. So can we can we work on schedules? Because I'm thinking about driving a bit. Is there a correlation there? <laughs> yes. Is there, don't <laughs> no, don't no, read too much into this. Completely unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> oh. All right. Fishbowl dipping. Yeah, go for it. So I I want your I want your view on this because I don't know if my thought processes here are are making sense. And so I just want to I want to say a few things here and then and then get your reaction. So Robin Hood is coming out with, or maybe recently, I saw the headline, but I'm not sure what the date of release is, coming out with a crypto wallet. Um, so Robin Hood, as folks probably know, Robin Hood has been able to or he's allowed its users to buy and sell crypto for a while now. Um, but a crypto wallet allows you to use the crypto. Basically, you can you can hold it and you can be able to transact with it for places that will take crypto. This for me, here's the thought process that started kicking off for me. They, they're getting more and more into transaction-based services, like uh, systemic transaction-based services, meaning you can get, you can like bank with them. They pay a pretty high um, rate, mm-hmm. interest rate on savings. Um, they, they'll give you a debit card, right, that you can go and you can use. Now, other brokerages also have like banking-related services um, like that. But what feels different to me is what I what it seems like they're emphasizing. Like when I look at other services, it seems like they want you to bank there so that you can invest, so you can build your wealth and then use that yeah. with them, right? Like that's what they're after. And Robinhood seems to want you to invest so you can transact through them. Like it's almost like everything is kind of a transaction <laughs> with them. And it's 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 fascinating to me, especially given that Robinhood is now, it's down, its stock is down something like 60, 65% from IPO. And from its peak, I think around 90%-ish. Yeah, 80 plus, yeah. Yeah, something like that. And so they're now a $9 billion company. And it feels like a $9 billion user experience powerhouse within the user experience powerhouse. Like that phrase goes together, not like a powerhouse, right? Within this investing world. And I don't know what this means, like a, like to be this transactional with everything that they're doing. They're becoming more and more transactional while talking about maybe having IRAs in the future. And I, I don't know what that business is. So that's why I just call it a user experience powerhouse, because I don't know what the, the standalone business is. So these are the thoughts uh, in my head. Okay. So first, did you know that Goldman Sachs waited for Robinhood to go down 84% before they decided to recommend that you, you should sell it? So- Nice work by the analysts there. I just wanted to shout that out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a perfect world, I know we don't live in a perfect world, but in a perfect world, you might tell people to sell it near the top rather than after the eighty-four percent drawdown. But but now I did so, the time sorry, to sell according to Goldman Sachs. I just picture just with that. So now you say that I picture the analyst like ships that report or whatever out, and in the office it's just. Slow clap. It's like, yeah, I mean his his or hers uh, friends on the uh, Friday afternoon happy hour better be giving the, that person a hard time about that recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> nice work, Bob. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so I I like your lens on this. I think. Robinhood is a unique company, but I never would have thought of the, the way you phrased it. I think it makes tons of sense, though. Why would a, co- 
a company think of themselves as a transactional company? Well, maybe if your entire business model was getting paid for order flow, which is basically <laughs> that. So how do they make revenue when you talk about their core investing space, which is the large majority of their business? They get paid when people trade. So to to take that lens and apply it to other aspects of whether it's embedded banking or crypto or anything else probably makes sense. That's probably the lens that their executive leadership team thinks about all things through, but it would make them a unique player in the space. That's such a fragile business model because like you, you're not building your organization to benefit or to want to incentivize people to, to build money, to accumulate funds. That's like, that's not what you're built to do. You're to your point, you're, you're developing it for them to transact and you make your money in transactions. And I, I, I guess I don't see how that compounds for the, for the business over time. Like that, that's, what's hard. It's like a, it's like a hits driven organization. I was gonna say, unless Congress comes out and comes out with something, this will not happen. But if Congress came out with legislation that like solidified the payments for order flow um, business for like a hundred years, they gave them like, like if they said there's, we're going to make it so there's 0% chance we could ever take this down. I think Robin Hood stock probably like jumps a whole bunch, but that isn't like, I don't know. I, I it's hard. What, what is their company? Like what's the, well, I, I have a slightly different perspective. Um, I mean, like Visa, Visa's business model is pays people to transact. They just know they get a cut of that. Uh, Meta, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, org doesn't pay people to transact, but it pays for people's attention based on, and that's like a time transaction if you put the right lens on it. So I don't know that I have the concerns you have. I just think it's a different lens to a similar approach. With a crypto wallet, if they do it right, and I don't know the specifics, I mean, they're not really gonna have a revenue stream associated from the transactions that happen in the crypto wallet. It's just another feature that they think will add stickiness to the people to transact through equities and banking. Yeah, that, so that it makes sense. It's a good point. The, the difference that I see is those other orgs that you talked about, the, their uh, potential market size is the globe. You've, you've built Visa is taking like transactions for anything that you buy ever. So it's a small amount off of all I mean, I know Visa doesn't have 100% market share, but I'm just saying like potentially if yeah. you get it, it's like all that. Whereas investing specifically invest or a transaction transacting in asset purchase, I'll just call it right. Like unless they're trying to be the platform for all assets, which is like a level of trust you need to get <laughs> before you get there. Yeah. I think that it's like, it's hard, which the, the outcome that makes sense given where they are today the outcome that makes sense to me is that they're bought by like someone that needs their user experience, like someone that has that, that trust, uh, JP Morgan, not even a Schwab. Like I think it has to be someone that is that like has so yeah. much credibility and trust that, that needs that can utilize that transaction layer. But if you are just the transaction layer, when you're like not particularly well trusted, yeah. uh, it, it's, it's a tough one. I don't know. Maybe they have a, a business plan that, you know, they're, they're playing 12 dimensional chess, but I just feel like they're playing Chinese checkers. 
Like that's just like kind of like what that's, that's what that's what it feels like, and it's a beautifully designed set. I mean, the user experience is really good. Uh, it's, it's really good. I mean, it's it's, it's unbelievably really good. good. It's I and now the other players have effectively copied it, but to think about the delta there, like two years back between like an e-trade or whatever and the Robinhood app in terms of the user experience it was drastic it, i mean monumental and it there it's still um there's still a gap there for sure so yeah. i don't know where it goes it, luckily for me this is where i can be dr skippy i'm not losing any sleep over Robinhood's future business prospects i i really don't care <laughs> no i uh I wanted, I cared too much, probably a little bit, <laughs> but I, uh, Robin Hood's user experience, if you go back probably a couple of years, was, it was like so much better that I spent, this is too much time, but I spent time, I was like putting together like the bulleted list of comparisons between, because I um, currently have a Robin Hood brokerage account and a Schwab brokerage account and like went to Schwab and I said, I want you to like, I, I want you to have more of my yeah. money like that that is a yeah. thing that i desire you don't seem to want to have it and here's the bulleted list of why i don't believe that you'd like to have it i would love to understand what your plans are to either <laughs> this is how, how ridiculous is this like the people at schwab are like i don't get paid enough for this <laughs> like this we clown. hate this guy can we <laughs> yeah, exactly. can we kick can we kick this guy's accounts out of our company but, uh, um yeah Diggles, i'm glad you mentioned that was a couple years back because I just mentioned it. The Skippy and Diggle show is looking for equity investors. So if you're looking to park your money somewhere, like just come on over. <laughs> yes, exactly. Conflict of interest. Uh, that is amazing. I'm jealous of your passion there. But but it's it's true. Like I feel like we've almost hammered on this too much. The user experience was so much better that it was amazing. I mean, it was... Uh... <laughs> It's so ridiculous, but there was a point. Sorry, now I'm going back to memory lane. Here. Let's do it. Let's do it. There was a point where I was on the phone on a Saturday with someone that worked in Charles Schwab in like their, I can't remember what, the, it's some kind of like a trading department because I'd been transferred around so much where they're like, maybe this person can help you. And we were walking through, Schwab has an area within their account where you can like look at uh, your returns um, on like a chart type of fashion. Yeah. And I was explaining to them, I was like, here, here are the different types of like return views that I want, right? And I'll show you, here's like my spreadsheet that I've developed to keep track of it myself. I want to understand how I can do this through your service. And here's what I can do over in Robinhood, which like Robinhood actually doesn't have a good service yeah, there too, but- That's but, one um, place where they're kind of lacking. But what yeah. Robinhood does have is they have, um, their, their backend is developed in such a way where I can right click, go into inspect element, pull out some of their, um, <laughs> like uh, their, the- <laughs> I know it's ridiculous, um, but but I, I can I can pull out some of the uh, the like JSON code, put it into this other site, and it spits out the table I need. And I was like, if you can you recreate that? Because I can't I can't play around on the Schwab side. What they do is they end up kicking out like a like a JPEG, like it's it's not interactive yeah. at all. So yeah. I can't do anything. So anyway, this guy could not care less. But I will I'll give them credit <laughs> only for like they stayed on the phone with me for twenty minutes, right, to discuss this, <laughs> but. This is the level that I that I went to. I mean, this is an investing podcast that has gone to a hypothetical land of government-backed digital cryptocurrencies 
so we could talk about the ramifications of negative interest rates. Like we've been to pretty some pretty nerdy spaces here, Douglas. You might have just topped it all. The the Saturday <laughs> phone call with some swamp trader that doesn't care at all about your years of experience. So like the point zero zero one percent of people who care about investing could could get the JSON code. This is a whole yeah. Wow. I don't think we have any listeners left at this point in the episode, but I love it. It's all good. Oh man. Any, anything else you got in your fishbowl? I want to talk. I keep hammering on interest rates for home mortgages, right? I just want to give a shout out. Wall Street Journal has this awesome article slash breakdown where they have a simple stacks bar plot and they show how home ownership affordability has evolved um, mm. in the last like 24 months, right? Yep. And there's basically three factors here. There's your income, right? If your income is going up and home prices are remaining the same, then homes get more affordable. There's the price of the home. So if home prices go up, homes get less affordable. And then there's interest rates. And for the longest time, basically, interest rates have been decreasing and have been at historic lows. Incomes have been pretty solid. And so then the only thing, those are both working in your favor. The only thing you have to overcome is the rising home prices, right? But what's happened in the past four months really is that home prices continue to rise very significantly. And all of a sudden, interest rates have flipped in a way where the the rising interest rates make things more expensive. So the home affordability index month by month has taken a drastic turn in the past four months. And I expect that to continue. And I don't know why I'm so fascinated with this, but just like income levels aren't anywhere near uh, where they would need to be to allow home prices to continue to rise, assuming that you think home affordability should remain like on an equal plane, right? If you say the home affordability index is effectively fixed, then the other things have to come out in the wash and... This likely means that home prices have to cool down a little bit. It's probably it's likely, yeah. It is. It's a. It makes sense to me that you um, are fixated by this because it's as much as I, I've joked a few times around uh, part jest, part seriousness, but I've said a few times around how we are taking like these 0.25, 0.5 interest rate changes, and we're like what like how dare you right when there are countries that are like at 40 percent, right like massive massive yeah. takes um but at the same time the home is generally going to be on average the largest asset that people have and so you're taking a small percent and you're multiplied by a big number and that absolute value when income is staying the same matters a heck of a lot right yeah you, you were covering some of those specific numbers um, last week or the week before. And so it makes sense that, that you're fixated around that. Like it, it matters a heck of a lot. Uh, what on this chart, you sent me the chart over. What yeah. is the, well, the Y axis? What's that vertical axis? The affordability index. But like, what is a 30? Uh, it's uh, basically a percent. Okay. Okay. So like, is, is our things 10% more affordable, 10% less affordable? Okay. It's just that normalized range. 
Yeah, this this is going to be. I hope that people don't rush, as we talked about before. Like that's the thing that I really hope doesn't happen. Is people say things are becoming less and less affordable, and I have to have a home. So mm-hmm. like a, I have to own a home. Um, so therefore, let me go out and buy because then you're you're just getting yourself into an overreaching like conundrum. Yeah, I hope true. that doesn't very happen. true. But it's I mean, happen. so it's gonna happen. But don't worry, there's there's good truck driving jobs available, so that you is, can offset that with some income. And there you go. But you're on good. the road all the time. Don't aren't even at your home. You don't you don't even need a house, do you? So there's another conundrum. <laughs> but hey, listen, I mean. You can listen to the Skippy and Dugo show on the road. That is that is very <laughs> true. Well played. Well played. One hour of your 75 hours is covered <laughs> with uh, lots of fun banter. All right. Anything else in your fishbowl? Good. Well, uh, take some of the, the, the $60 you're making off those I uh, series bonds and uh, throw a premium subscription our way <laughs> if you want. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, find us at skippydoogles.com, Twitter at skippydoogles. What's the Substack, Doogles? Uh, skippydoogles.substack.com. We, We're all um, over I don't the think place. We've, I don't think we've actually said that this, like what is on it here today, but I've had people, probably happened to YouTube, but I've had people that have said like, what was that article you mentioned? Or what was, you know, what were you talking about there? So after the pod comes out on Mondays, a little bit later, a couple hours after, uh, the Substack, on the Substack, we'll have the links that refer to like stories that we talk about or topics that are related so if you ever wonder that for current episodes or past you can go take a look on those and then we'll periodically not all that frequently but periodically we'll release like just things stuff we're thinking about too but generally speaking it's if you want the links for stories we're talking about you can find them on the Substack. stack skippydoogles.substack.com like if you subscribe to the um email notification there it's amazing because basically every monday you just get all the articles that we uh, pontificated on uh, really handy, awesome feature. Probably better than the Twitter, to be honest. So uh, that's a good one. All right. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Bye.